the automated podcast. Welcome to Automated. I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov, and in this weekly podcast, we will be exploring the impact of emerging technology on jobs, society, as well as us, with business and technology leaders, researchers, and independent professionals across the world. So one of the topics that I've actually discussed a number of times offline, but haven't really had the opportunity to bring it up on the podcast before, is the automation of relationships and specifically sex. And by this, I don't really mean at all the online dating scene, which uh, has, I really think, been discussed extensively by now uh, on other platforms, but rather the use of robotic sex dolls, more commonly known as sex bots. So though it's still a relatively new phenomenon, there is a growing interest and use around these robots. Uh, My guest, John Danaher, will point out a few polls in the discussion but generally from 2013 to 2020 in America there was uh, it was shown that there was a real growth in interest from about 10% to about 40% in actually using one of these robots so the kind of natural questions that come up are uh, if they are to become mainstream what kind of disruptions would follow their use what kind of ethical implications will they bring and how will, of course, they impact relationships in general. So my guest uh, comes on today to discuss these things and many other uh, problems that come up with the use of sex bots. So John Danaher is a senior lecturer at NUI Galloway in Ireland, and his research interests are in the areas of legal philosophy, emerging technologies, and the future of human society. So he was a great guest to have onto the podcast. Uh, He is an author of Automation and Utopia, Human Flourishing in a World Without Work, and the co-editor of Robot Sex, Social and Ethical Implications, which is, of course, the most relevant point for uh, today's episode. He's also published many papers on different topics, including the risks of advanced AI, the ethics of social robots, meaning of life, and, of course, the future of work and the ethics of human enhancement. And he has a, a website, Philosophical Disquisitions, which I'll, of course, as per usual, have in the show notes in case you wanted to check out more of his writings. Uh, But enough of the intro, let's dive into this very interesting discussion for today. Great. Well, hi there, John. Thanks for coming on to the Automated Podcast. It's great to have you here today to talk about something that I've been actually quite interested to bring onto the podcast for a while, and I haven't had the opportunity yet. So thanks for coming on to talk about sex robots and their impact on uh, society and us. Sure, no problem. Thanks for inviting me to be a guest on the show, Mark. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. So um, maybe we can just start off. Uh, I think that there's maybe a little bit of confusion as to what exactly a sex robot is. And I think that the definition can be sometimes a little bit nebulous. So maybe we can start off with just a quick definition of what it is and then uh, how you got interested in, uh, I mean, you wrote a book on it. So how, how this topic uh, became interesting for you. Yeah, sure. Um, so in terms of the definition, as you say, this is something that might be contested, but the way in which I have defined it in the past is usually that a sex robot is a, a some kind of an embodied uh, three-dimensional um, object, first mm-hmm. of all, which has a humanoid form and has some kind of human-like a- appearance and movement and also has some kind of human-like behavior or intelligence um, 
Mm. So kind of, you know, a, a physical, a human-like doll that can move and that can maybe interact with you, like have some sort of minimal conversation with you or give sort of conver- uh, res- responses to some kind of conversational prompt would count in my mind as a, as a sex robot. Um, I think, that, you know, where things get tricky is whether you can have some kind of like immersive VR type technology mm. and does that count as a robot? Um, I mean, if you want to get into the kind of nitty gritty of the technology, like the, there's actually possibly even more developments in the area of VR based uh, sex technology than there is in terms of the three dimensional uh, humanoid uh, robot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you, you, you can have some kind of VR based interactive system with a haptic technology, which is designed to like stimulate some kind of sexual response. Uh, and you're interacting with a, an avatar on, on this kind of immersive display. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that, does that count as a robot? I think like, I, I tend to be somewhat indifferent as to whether that counts as a robot or not, because it's kind of performing the same sort of function in people's lives. But I think most people disagree with me and, and would say that that's not a robot. That's like a, an AI that you're interacting with through kind of an informational computer simulated environment and the three-dimensional object is, is a separate kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that's contested in this area, you know, I insisted there on that, in that definition on having a human-like appearance or humanoid appearance. You know, some people say, well, why does it have to be uh, humanoid? And, you know, historically there are um, sex toys and sex dolls that have been sold that are not human-like in appearances that you can have animal-based yeah. you know dildos and vibrators or um sex toys uh, some of those might be sold just for humor purposes as opposed to kind of things that people really interact with but um i guess you know i, I don't have a strong strong objection to the idea that uh, you could have non-humanoid um sex doll or sex robots but i tend to think they're kind of less interesting from a kind of ethical and philosophical perspective which is the perspective that i come at this from okay okay you know the question i can answer if you want but i, you know, I don't want to monologue too much which is you know, why did i become interested in this topic um really kind of as happens with most things i guess pure happenstance i was invited to write an article on technological unemployment and the basic income guarantee that yep, idea yep. for a special edition of a journal and I decided I would just look at the impact of uh, technology on sex work. And I looked specifically at whether sex workers would be replaced by robots, because there, there had been a couple of people who had written about that. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought I had a kind of um, different perspective on it to what most people had. And from there, I just kind of started exploring the issue in a bit more detail and um, pursuing different questions. And it, it seemed when I first became interested in this topic, maybe, you know, the bones of eight years ago, nine years ago even there weren't that many people that were interested in it uh, it's since then it's been a kind of explosion of interest in it mm-hmm. um so but early on there, there were opportunities i thought to kind of make some sort of interesting contribution to the societal conversation on the topic so that's why i became interested in it 
Perfect. Yeah, that's that's actually the the exact same way that I became interested in this in this topic as well. So I'm really happy that uh, uh, we share that kind of commonality and that you're able to come on the podcast to talk about that because that's that's definitely kind of the main trend, the main focus of the podcast, uh, and something that uh, it would be good to to maybe get in uh, later on in the in the conversation. Um, but uh, so I had a conversation with uh, with a couple of friends about this specific topic uh, last week or so, and one of the things that uh, that came up in the discussion um, was you know what exactly Exactly is kind of the state of the art of sex robots as it stands today, because I think a lot of the conversations typically revolve around, you know, in the future, maybe in like 20 years time when they, the, the sex robots are kind of almost indistinguishable from humans. And, and that's definitely not the case today. Um, so could you maybe lay out a little bit how the, uh, how the current sex robots um, can act uh, you know, what their capabilities are, uh, how exactly are they being presented to the world today? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right that it's kind of science fiction and movies and um, books that have prompted a lot of the interest and conversation mm -hmm. in this. And that's not necessarily reflective of what the current day technology is, is like. If people are interested in this, there's a website that I recommend. It's called futureofsex.net. And they actually have something called the, cur the Current Guide to um sex robots something, uh, something along those lines if you, if you type it into google you'll find it and they basically go through all the current models that are on available on the market and some that have um the companies that were started and failed to kind of develop a commercially viable product and so that'll give you a good sense of, of what the technology is like you know the most prominent example of a sex robot is undoubtedly the so-called real botics um created by Matt McCullen from Abyss Creations. So Matt McCullen is uh, pretty famous back in the mid '90s for creating you know, these ultra realistic sex dolls. Um, the company called Real Doll. Um, a number of them have been used in like movies, and you know, prominent media figures have spoken about them. I think it probably really took off in let's say the U.S. In popular culture. I think when Howard Stern mentioned that he had bought one on on his radio okay, show, which okay, okay. Is obviously quite influential back in the the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and then, you know, there's a, there have been movies made with these dolls and then Lars and the Real Girl is a, a famous example. I think that featured, um, Ryan, oh, what's his name? Now I can't remember the name of the Canadian actor. Uh, Ryan Reynolds? No, it's not Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> okay. It's um, kind of blondie guy. It doesn't matter. I, I, um, I should know his name. I don't know why it's I've blanked on it, but it, it features him in one of his early roles as a kind of like socially awkward man who um, mm, mm. Kind of learns how to interact with people through um, this sex doll and kind of come out of his shell as a result of that. So uh, there, there's kind of been popular media depictions of that. So that that previously that product was just like a an inanimate doll um, with you know a fairly sophisticated internal skeleton and quite a, a lifelike appearance. And since about 2018, Abyss Creations have started offering this, this model that has a robotic head on it that kind of turns and lips that open and move and mm -hmm. can talk to you. And you can actually, I think, buy an AI personality for it. You've to, it's a subscription model, something like $30 okay. a year to have this kind of chat bot interface, which you know the technology is about as sophisticated as most um, current AI chatbots are. So if you interact with siri or alexa you have some sense of what, where that technology is at we don't have anything like a robot that walks around in a very realistic way mm -hmm. um you know again the real robotics one is just literally the, the head moves as opposed to 
other parts of the body. There are quite a number of Chinese companies that have come into the market in the past like two to three years, offering various models, some maybe more dubious in their kind of um, ethos than others. Uh, something I want to get back into, but there's been quite a controversial development of like child uh, dolls and robots in, in recent years coming from um, Chinese manufacturers and some prominent court cases in the UK a number of years ago, people importing such dolls uh, being uh, prosecuted. Um, uh, but I mean, there are other kind of more legitimate uh, variations of this from Chinese companies, and they're all kind of listed on this website, futureofsex.net, if people are interested in their videos of the products that they um, purport to offer. And again, I mean, they're all roughly in the same vein as the real products product. It's, you know, a doll with maybe some kind of basic animatronics in it, and maybe some kind of like chat bot type interface with it too. Okay. Okay. Good to know. Um, so uh, again, going back to the to the conversation that I had with some of my friends, right? So this is kind of what we assumed as well, right? It's it's definitely not able to be mobile, but you can have some sort of basic conversation, and uh, you know, it, maybe it's head swivels or something like that, and it's anatomically correct if you if you want to use that term. Um, but one of the questions that one of my friends brought up was like, okay, so this is what it is now. Why should we be taking this technology seriously, right? Uh, maybe in 10 years time, maybe in 20 years time, it'll be significantly advanced. And that's the time that we should be taking it seriously. But why would we even think about bothering with this technology now? Like why talk about it? Why is there so much buzz? Um, essentially, why take this technology seriously now? I suppose like, the, I mean, there's a number of different perspectives to which you can approach that question. Is serious relative to what? I mean, serious as a commercial product that you're gonna make money from. Um, maybe it's not commercially viable at the moment. Maybe it's a fairly niche product. I think, you know, Real Doll as a company has been viable for 20 plus years, but it does cater to a fairly small market. Exactly. And exactly. I, I mean, I can't actually remember the exact figures, but I know when I first looked at this, again, this is more than half a decade ago, I think Real Doll in the first 20 years of its existence had sold less than 10,000 Real Dolls or something like that. Okay. Even though, you know, the company was still running and still operational, it wasn't a huge, the, you know, it wasn't a mass market product. Um, but, you know, from my perspective in terms of like the ethics and law of something, you might be interested in this product now because you want to uh, kind of get ahead of the current trend. So you know, one, one problem with, um, legal regulation of any technologies it's usually reactionary we, we react to the technology once it's already developed we can see this nowadays let's say with the emergence of um kind of you know, social media platforms and digital surveillance a lot of those products were allowed to develop in the absence of, kind of any regulatory oversight yeah. they yeah. exist in this kind of no man's land and now different countries are scrambling to sort of well, there's all these terrible things that happen with this technology. So let's now try and protect against disinformation and um, kind of non-consented surveillance and use of consumer data. So we might want to try and get ahead of that trend now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I think also, I also approach this from a kind of purely philosophical perspective. I think it's interesting to ask certain philosophical questions about, you know, why do we have this desire to create a technology like this? What does it say about human society? Are there aspects of this technology that could be beneficial that we might want to promote? Are there aspects of this technology that are negative and more problematic that we might want to try and prevent or redirect the motivation or desires behind the, its creation? 
in some way. I mean, one thing I will say in response to your friend about why, why we should take it seriously, I think we should take it seriously because like technology and sex have always gone you know, hand in hand. That's uh, uh, maybe a, an inapposite phrase, but like, um, you know, we, we, you can find primitive sex technologies dating back 25,000 years. The, you know, the, the oldest known dildo is from an archaeological site in, in Germany and it's estimated to be about, you know, 30,000, 25 to 30,000 years old. And we see similar technologies used throughout human history. And, you know, humans are uh, kind of a sexual species and sexual identity, sexual experience is a core part of the human experience. So why wouldn't we want to be, take seriously the relationship between technology and sex? And if this is one of the new frontiers of that, yeah. uh, I think it makes sense that we would focus on it to some, to some degree. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't agree further with you. Um so you did touch on maybe one aspect of the benefits that could be brought up about with this technology, right? So if we talk about like the benefits and the, the negative aspects that could be brought up, um, you said something about the, this Canadian actor in this movie, right? The ability for people that might be not very socially um, well adapted, they could be using a sex robot to either interact um, and develop some sort of skills before they're able to, you know, interact at a higher level with with normal humans um is that is that kind of the main benefit that you see with the adoption of sex robots and is that still going to be like a small percentage of the population or is there going to be something a little bit larger if this technology gets scaled out yeah i mean before i answer your question it was ryan gosling yeah okay that's um it was a one of the ryan's um i say it was like one of his early roles anyway uh yeah, in terms of the benefits of the technology, I mean, you can think about this in kind of narrow or more expansive ways. I mean, there's certainly, I think, a tendency initially, and I think part of this is just to legitimize the technology in some people's minds, to view it as a kind of therapeutic tool mm-hmm. um, to, for people with maybe some kind of uh, social adjustment or social anxiety disorder or issues that this could be beneficial to them, people who are socially isolated, that might be beneficial to them. Um, but, you know, while that could well be true, it could be beneficial to them. I think there's more research that needs to be done as to whether interactions with robots, social robots, is beneficial for people with kind of social anxiety or social disorders. Um, I think we, we could think about it in a more expansive sense that, you know, this kind of technology could just be beneficial in terms of kind of from a purely hedonistic perspective and the extent that mm. subjective sexual pleasure is a good thing. And if this technology allows us to distribute that more widely, that would be a benefit. I also think, you know, there's a tendency in a lot of these discussions to view the robots in opposition to human sexual partners and that, that they're all yeah. substitutes or alternatives to each other, that you either have a sex doll or a sex robot robot or you have you know a well-adjusted social life and uh, have a human partner and i think that kind of oppositional view is something that we should challenge this is a, something that a colleague of mine who i wrote the or edited the book that you mentioned mm-hmm. with um, neil MacArthur has written about more detail than i have but he thinks that you know sex robots could be used to complement human relationships to the same degree that many couples use sex toys in their relationships nowadays and there's no kind of shame or stigma about that in the future it could be the case that people introduce sex dolls or sex uh, robots into their relationships and there's no kind of stigma associated with that and i i can see some reasons for 
thinking that that will be true. I mean, there's certainly been a reduction in stigma around something like polyamory and more discussions of that as being a kind of a positive lifestyle choice, almost a distinctive sexual identity for people. And, um, you know, if, you, if you're allowed to have multiple human partners, why not have kind of a mix of human and mm-hmm. robot partners? And this could be, again, kind of a positive lifestyle choice since, you know, traditional monogamous relationships don't work for everyone. Okay, so, I, I you know, I, I would encourage people to move beyond just thinking about the benefits of this technology simply in terms of therapy, mm-hmm. that this could actually just be something that's of more broader social benefit. But that is obviously contingent on whether we remove some of the social stigma that tends to be associated with this kind of technology. Right, right, right. Oh, that, that's really interesting. I hadn't, uh, I mean, I personally hadn't thought about just the kind of hedonistic, uh, pleasurable uh, aspect of that, which is, of course, kind of maybe one of the more obvious things uh, when you actually think about this, when, when you think about this technology. Um, I did want to go back, and maybe this is a good segue to to like discuss the negative implications of the technology, but you did mention the kind of uh, difficult discussion about um, these robots being built in the likeness of children. And I think that this is something that's always brought up um, as to like whether this would um, categorize this technology as, you know, um, more positive or more negative uh, on the whole. Um, Could you maybe elaborate this, this discussion a little bit? Like what exactly are the benefits and possible repercussions? Like if there is studies showing that, uh, you know, the, the sex robots and the likeness of children would reduce the amount of pedophilia or would it actually increase the amount of pedophilia, um, which is typically what the, what the discussion um, focuses on? Yeah, I mean, I think I would separate out two things. Like one is the discussion around uh, child sex dolls and, and pedophilia. And one is a, a kind of another discussion about other kind of negative implications yeah, or potentially yeah. negative implications of yeah, the technology, yeah. which we, we can get back to. But in terms of like the, the pedophilia discussion, and this is the, the kind of thing that I tend to write more about or focus more about given my background in law and ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there have been some prominent figures who have suggested that these dolls could be used for therapeutic purposes, uh, for, specifically uh, for treating people um, with some kind of child-related paraphilia. And, I mean, I say child-related paraphilia because if you get into the literature on this, you know, pedophilia is, is a specific kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And there's other, other kinds of paraphilia that relate to kind of older, older adolescents that society tends to still view as kind of problematic in various ways. Okay. Um, but that, that's just a kind of technical um, distinction. And I should say as well that I don't know of any like robots that have been built in the shape of, of children for sexual purposes, but they're definitely dolls that have yeah. Uh, yeah. child sex dolls. And as I mentioned, a couple, couple of years ago, a number of people in the UK were prosecuted under quite an old statute for importing child sex dolls from, mm. um, from Asia, from a number of different countries in Asia, but uh, primarily China. Okay. Um, so I suppose I, I'm somewhat skeptical as to whether there is likely to be a, a therapeutic benefit to this technology. But actually, more um, importantly, I'm skeptical as to whether we could ever know that there is a therapeutic benefit to this technology in in a way that could make us like sufficiently confident that it's worth experimenting with it and using it in that context. Um, because you know, my reading of the the literature on therapeutic interventions into uh, pedophilia is that it's actually very difficult to an area, very difficult area to study. Yeah. 
um, very difficult area to get funding in, for example. Um, most people, uh, most pedophiles don't come forward for treatment uh, unless they're compelled to do so by court order or for, mm -hmm. through some other factor. So you're kind of getting a biased, maybe non-representative sample of such people um, in a lot of these therapeutic studies. Uh, also, you know, the history of some other kind of debates around the social impacts of, of violent media or sexual media on behavior is highly contested. And it's not clear that, that there are kind of any obvious answers as to, to whether it increases or decreases future offending, um, mm -hmm. for example. I mean, all that said, like, I'm not, I'm not completely averse to the idea of, of this being used for therapeutic purposes. If it's the case that the technology would prevent real world child sexual offending, yeah. then that, that could be a good thing. But I would just say that we would have to study that in a very careful way. Um, and we, we shouldn't overinterpret any individual study that somebody does. And, you know, there should be very clear guidelines on how such research should is conducted. We should try and get representative samples of the population of potential child offenders, which is going to be a very difficult thing to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there should be clear objective reporting of all such studies. Uh, these things should be pre-recorded, pre-registered studies. Uh, this is due to kind of problems in scientific inquiry anyway, where we've had issues in the past with you know, the replication of studies, whether uh, therapies or interventions actually hold up to, to closer scrutiny over time. Um, but yeah, like I, as I say, I'm not, a, I'm not opposed to the idea of investigating this further. I just think it's very hard to investigate it well. Okay. Okay. Good to know. And, and as far as I'm aware uh, right now, although there have been some people who've been interested in studying this topic, there have been no empirical studies of it. Okay. So it might, it might actually be that even if there is more interest in doing this research, it, the, the, I guess the fundamental aspect that the research is so difficult to do um, that the uh, knowledge that we gain after the research is done might not actually give us a concrete answer as to whether there is an actual benefit to this type of therapy or whether it would, uh, which is I think what most people are afraid of, you know, increase the amount of pedophilia or, you know, attraction to children or, um, have these these poor people um, actually act on their their desires rather than just thinking about it and repressing it because they now have kind of like a it's like a gateway drug right if you're able to do something with yeah. it all then it would lead to um, you know more desire to actually uh, act these things out in the real world um, okay but good to know that there's yeah. the, the, the research is I mean, still out, just, so. just to, to jump in on that that point though um, mm -hmm. because this also affects other kinds of debates around the imp uh, negative implications of this technology mm -hmm. you know, th there are questions that are asked about the um whether if you have a, a technology like this th does it dampen those sexual desires or the, or the desire to act out on certain yeah. sexual impulses against real people or does it actually um kind of accentuate them right and like one of the things that is sort of the clinical consensus on pedophilia at the moment is that you shouldn't encourage people to act on their mm. desires and impulses. You should focus on ways in which you can control and minimize and dampen them as opposed to um, encouraging some sort of cathartic outlet for them. Because the fear is that that actually just habituates people to that behavior and makes them desire more of it. Right. Um, so if you take that kind of prevailing clinical consensus as a kind of starting point, that would bias you against the use of this technology in a therapeutic way. Now, but that prevailing uh, clinical consensus may be wrong. 
Okay, and, and there are some people who dispute it. Um, there's a couple of Norwegian researchers, uh, Ole Martin Moen and um, Axel Brennan Steri, who've written a paper that was kind of critical of something that I wrote on, on this topic, where they argue that there could, in fact, be therapeutic benefits mm-hmm. to this technology. And, and they look at some kind of statistical studies suggesting that um, overall rates of real world child sexual offending might have gone down with the wider availability of of child pornography let's say mm. now child pornography is obviously problematic and it's uh, for other reasons but you know one of the arguments would be that like a child sex doll or virtual child pornography would be less problematic than yeah. um the the traditional form of it yeah and i'm also thinking like there's the there's the current sex doll versus the sex doll of the future, which might be, uh, you know, bridging that uncanny valley. Um, yeah. If if there's if there's really no way for you to distinguish between a sex doll or sex robot child versus an actual child, then, uh, I mean, I think logically speaking, it would it, even if kind of your theory is correct, I think that the desire to enact this on on um, on an entity, if you will would be theoretically satisfied if the robot is as close to a human being as you can possibly get. But uh, again, maybe the, the the science needs to come in, the research needs to come in to validate that properly. Yeah, but I, I mean, ironically, if if the doll or the robot is as close to a human as you can get, mm-hmm. that kind of raises questions as to whether you are wronging the robot in some way or whether yeah. the robot could be a victim yeah. of what, what's happening. Um, and I have views on that too, but... Uh, I mean, so that like there's there's sort of like an interesting um, Goldilocks zone that you want this technology to lie in, which is that it's it's just realistic enough to satisfy someone's sexual desires, but doesn't entail that there's any harm done to the robot or mm. doesn't call into question it or cause us to worry about any potential harm to the robot. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it's it's kind of maybe it might be hard to actually fit within that uncanny moral valley so to speak as well yeah. um and it might be that like people find it distressing as well to, to think about the technology if it's hyper realistic um mm-hmm. and yeah that uncanny valley effect could also dissuade or discourage people from it too well i think i think you touched on something that's quite interesting yeah it's uh, i mean i've definitely had this discussion before about whether we can you know, include ethics and, and kind of a moral arguments when it comes to technology. Like, can you harm a robot? Can you can you make a, an AI system feel bad? Right. Like, I, I guess this really brings up discussions as to like what is how does this actually uh, work within humans if we're thinking that this can be done with with robots and specifically in the um, you know the the sex doll specifically the child sex doll uh, discussion that we're having. Yeah, I mean, like my my view on this is relatively straightforward, but uh, it's controversial. Um, so I, I would tend to apply something like a, a moral version of the Turing test to this, which is that um, if the robot or entity is indistinguishable from a human with respect to whatever moral properties we think are relevant, mm. then we have to treat the two as equivalent. And so the same moral rules apply to the robot as would apply to a human being. Um, now, like mo- most accounts of like what it is that makes it wrong to do something to a human hinge on the human's mental capacities in some way. So it's the, the human's capacity to suffer mm-hmm. or the human's mm-hmm. capacity to have certain 
desires or aspirations that are thwarted or interests that are thwarted or their capacity to form a, a personality that remembers things over time and can remember traumatic events and so forth. Um, the problem I have with like, all those accounts of like, what it is that makes it problematic to do something to a human, um, all those accounts depend on things that are unobservable. So you can't directly observe somebody's pain or suffering. Mm-hmm. We can't directly uh, observe their desires. All we can ever do is infer the existence of such mental states from their behavior. And so for me, this means that if, if a robot or artificial entity is behaviorally indistinguishable from a human with respect to those properties, then you can in fact harm the robot. And so the same moral rules apply to the robot as would apply to a human being. Okay. Okay. I, uh, I can appreciate that argument. Um, where I think I would maybe push back a little bit on this is if you're able to, and I guess this is, this is years away, but if you're able to program the robot to, uh, in a sense, mimic those attributes that show pain, but internally, um, uh, there would actually be no sort of pain or no sort of suffering. Uh, I, I don't know if that's if that's already been done to a certain extent or not, or if this is even possible uh, based on what you're describing. But um, I, I did have this this discussion with actually some of, some of my friends, and if if the robot is mimicking, you know, the kind of suffering that humans are doing, but inside nothing's happening, then is there still does that argument still apply? Yeah, I mean, you're getting into kind of deep philosophical debates here, yeah, but yeah. I think so. My issue is that the scenario that you're imagining is one that we requires a certain kind of knowledge that we'll never have, which is: yeah. uh, is it the case that internally it doesn't suffer? Because I don't know internally what, what what's happening in your mind. Exactly. Yeah, there's a classic philosophical thought experiment, but you could be what they call a philosophical zombie, which means you know you have all the outward signs of being a human being, but actually. There's no consciousness, there's no inner mental life at all. But it makes no difference from my perspective. So I think if it makes no difference from our perspective, then that also implicates our our morality. And sure, we can debate until the cows come home whether the robot really feels pain, if it's just mimicking pain. But in in a sense, my view is that mimicking pain is enough to to mean that we should at least be cautious with respect to our, our moral treatment of them. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Well, the, that's a that's a, maybe an interesting tangent for for another time, because <laughs> uh, it, yeah. can, it, it can uh, can be a bit of a black hole. Um, maybe we can move on then to kind of the the overall negative aspects that we can see, uh, specifically if the uh, sex robots were to be, I guess, adopted at scale. Um, so, I mean, the the child aspect is is I think quite vivid and is one of the first things that people discuss when it comes to this. But uh, what are some of these other kind of negative repercussions that we could see um, impacting society? Well, I mean, look, the, the big one, is, and people will note this if they go to that website that I mentioned on futuresex.net, is that you know all of these dolls so far, robots so far, are women, right? They're, they're depicting women. They're representations of of women, maybe particularly kind of stereotypical representations of, of women. Um, and that is deemed kind of be problematic. And there's a number of kind of scholars within, let's say, sort of feminist ethics tradition that challenge the use of this technology, mainly for reasons very similar to why they challenge the depiction of women in kind of mainstream pornography, for example. But it, so the idea here is that the, these robots are kind of symbolically representing a certain view of, of what women are in society and how it's appropriate to treat women. And 
that in itself is problematic and we shouldn't sort of replicate and reproduce that image or understanding of what women are. And then this might also have these kind of negative downstream consequences that it habituates men in particular, obviously, to interact with women in a certain way that uh, kind of denigrates or demeans them, denies their sexual autonomy and their sexual subjectivity and um, could could lead to an increase in kind of real world sexual offending. But it doesn't even need to do that. It just it needs to kind of contribute or continue to contribute to this sort of negative societal attitudes towards the sexual life of, of women, let's say. And and this has already been seen with the sex dolls, if I'm not mistaken, right? The the sex dolls that don't have an AI system or don't have any kind of mobility or chat functionality to them. There's already this idea of, uh, you know, using kind of a denigrating uh, female perspective of them and and enacting certain acts that you wouldn't necessarily do with a with a human partner um if i'm not mistaken yeah so i mean there's that critique of sex dolls that they i mean in some sense you could argue that sex dolls are more problematic and that they are completely inanimate and that you know, there's no possibility of interaction or conversation with them they're just a tool that you use for whatever your kind of sexual needs are but they're a tool that kind of physically embodies or represents a woman and that might be um kind of problematic in the in your attitudes and your behaviors towards women. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, the asymmetry in the, the market for these things is also pretty clear. Again, Real Doll did, re, you know, release kind of rough figures as to who their clientele is. And I think it was like less than 10% of their clientele are women. Mm-hmm. And it's not zero. There are some yeah, that are interested yeah. in the technology. And, and maybe that number will grow if the technology is deemed more kind of socially acceptable or whatever. Uh, or desirable, but it's still very clearly a male-dominated market and a male uh, preference product, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, interestingly, the the flip side is obviously is true when it comes to sex toys, which are you know just um, they're not full embodied representations of um, of human sex partners. There, the market is predominantly female, or you know, more than fifty percent anyway. Maybe not quite as asymmetrical as it is when it comes to uh, robots. Um, and, you know, there are there are people who kind of push back against that kind of feminist critique and say, well, isn't there something like very objectifying and demeaning about uh, a, a vibrator or a dildo, and that it just represents one part part of, uh, right. of a man? Um, you know, I, I think I don't I don't know how true that that argument is, and I think you're kind of running into a, a larger debate there about uh, given the kind of historical treatment of women uh, versus men. Yeah. That, that kind of thing seems less problematic in, in that context. Um, and there are also kind of deeper, like maybe evolutionary reasons and psychological reasons as to why men and women might prefer different kinds of sex toy or sex uh, uh, product and sexual experience. Right? Um, I, I have my own podcast where I actually discuss this with one of my guests, um, Diana Fleischman, who's an evolutionary psychologist at some length, as, as to why it is that men prefer the physical embodied robot as opposed to the sex toy. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that, that debate has kind of emerged with sex dolls. It's also obviously emerged with other kinds of sexual media too. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so that's kind of the, the main, um, dominant negative aspect when we're talking about sex dolls. Are there, are there other, uh, ones that are close or similar in, in scope? Yeah. I mean, another kind of criticism of, of the technology 
is sort of the reverse um, side of what you were mentioning earlier on about the kind of therapeutic potential mm, for this technology, mm. which is actually that it, it's not the case as is depicted in that movie, Lars and the Real Girl, where somebody uses this technology to enable more social interaction and uh, kind of come out of their shell of isolation. That actually it'll just encourage people to retreat right. within their shells and become more isolated from humanity. Mm-hmm. There's a, a famous skit on this in um, the cartoon series Futurama. Uh, I don't know if people remember this. I'm probably showing my age by even mentioning it as an example. Um, but there was a, an episode of that where, it, you know, the whole um, idea of the show is that it's um, a guy from the year 2000 is propelled into the year 3000, right? Uh, and so in the future, they have these um, kind of robots that represent celebrities from the late 20th century, ironically. And one of them is uh, a representation of Lucy Liu, the um, mm. kind of uh, actress, and they, the Lucy Liu robot. And the character starts dating the Lucy Liu robot and um, becomes infatuated with her and never wants to go outside or leave uh, anymore. And all his kind of peers in the year 2000 tell him how terrible this is because actually, you know, it's been known for a long time that if, if people do date robots, Mm. They will never want to do anything. All the entirety of civilization, you know, science, sports, engineering, art—all of that is dependent on the desire to kind of seek a mate or a sexual partner. And if that desire is just easily catered for by technology, civilization crumbles as a result. Now, that's obviously right, an right. extreme kind of parody or satire of of that idea, but there is that concern that the easy availability of sexual satisfaction will encourage greater kind of isolation and retreat from society. Mm-hmm. In addition to lots of other trends that are encouraging that anyway, right? Right. We're, we're mm-hmm. um, you know, people are living through the COVID era. There's obviously external pressures towards greater socialization, isolation there. And the technology that we've created nowadays enables kind of greater convenience within one's home, all the entertainment you could need, all the products you could ever desire delivered to your front door, all the food you want kind of delivered to your front door. So when you combine the sex technology with all these other trends, you get this kind of push towards greater social isolation. Right, right. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, a scary idea, especially if we're kind of looking at the kind of potentially extreme situation of it. Um, if we maybe don't go to the year 3000, but uh, but go a little bit beforehand, uh, what um, I mean, we talked about this before the before the recording started, but there's kind of like potential psychological ramifications of an individual that is using a sex bot, even if it's not kind of the perfect sex bot that we might get in 20 years time or something like that. Um, so you were saying that there's uh, not enough research or there is no research on this and it's quite difficult, um, but maybe you could touch on you know, some ideas that you have regarding the psychological ramifications of an individual using one of these um, uh, sex robots. Yeah, I mean, I think, like, unfortunately, I think a lot of the psychological ramifications here are speculative at the moment, and mm-hmm. and they're kind of going to follow to a large extent what I've said so far, which is that okay, there could be some people for whom the interaction with this technology is beneficial. That you know, there are studies done on social robots, not sex dolls, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, the, their use for with children with kind of. Um, autism or autism spectrum disorder that actually helps them socialize and interact with people. Uh, so you might kind of use that as the basis for findings about, well, what kind of a sexual version of this technology enable. Um, again, there are some studies on VR pornography and uh, how that can be used 
kind of to either treat or maybe uh, encourage sexual mm-hmm. desires and the mm-hmm. reactions to that. Um, and I mean, there's also other interesting studies on the use of VR to encourage kind of empathy for other people. Right. So you might kind of imagine that the uh, let's say not just a purely kind of sexual robot, but let's say like an intimate robot companion could be used to uh, generate greater empathy for other humans. So th- mm-hmm. there's there's all these kinds of like speculative things in the in the positive and negative space of, of the implications of the technology. But the reality is that there hasn't really been any kind of you know serious empirical inquiry into this yet. And most of the literature to date is lamenting the lack of empirical inquiries. Mm-hmm. I think you know it's starting to change a little bit, but you kind of need number one a critical mass of these devices available and people using them to start studying their utility and their effects on society. Um, and then also, you know, people who are willing to fund this kind of research and take it seriously. Yeah. And that hasn't really been the case yet, but maybe it is now kind of mm-hmm. starting to gradually change. And I, I would expect there to be more empirical inquiries in this area within the next sort of five or so years. Right. So, so the main the main reason that this hasn't happened is just because the interest hasn't been there, and the amount of robots that have been available to the population has just been considerably low, I guess, up until up until this point. Yeah, because I mean, basically, if you're if you want to study the empirical effects of the technology, you have two options. One is that you buy a bunch of these devices and give them to people, mm-hmm. um, and you know, good luck trying to get ethics approval to do that. I mean, you might, and uh, if you're kind of dogged enough, persistent enough, you might. And particularly since, you know, again, the robotics version of this technology only became available in 2018, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so it's very kind of recent and academic inquiry moves slowly. So uh, we, we haven't seen that yet. Or else you're going to have like a critical mass of people who already have these devices in the real world who are willing to come forward to be studied in some sense. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we can do, or we can do some kind of statistical analysis of it because people are asked whether they have such a device and we can sort of track some correlations between their real world behaviors and them having this this device controlling for other variables. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're, we haven't been there yet, but hopefully there will be some kind of more inroads in this space in, in the next few years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, one of the things that I noticed um, in most of your responses was that the uh, social acceptability of this technology is kind of like one of the leading factors to um, understand this technology a little bit better. Um, I had a, I had another conversation with a friend. Uh, we had just recently rewatched the movie Her, um, and there was there was one aspect in that movie that I thought was very relevant for the conversation here. It's that the the dating of the AI system was not acceptable whatsoever, right? It was, it was deemed as, oh, you can't have a, uh, a normal relationship with a normal human. You need to have a relationship with a, with a robot. Like that's the only way that you can find some sort of connection. Um, so maybe my question to you is, uh, have you seen any kind of changes in the social acceptance of these sex bots? And if not, what is kind of required or necessary for the acceptance to to be had by society yeah i mean i i've seen some changes so you know i published this book in 2017 called robot sex which one, one of the chapters looked at empirical studies of this technology and the attitudes and acceptability of it 
And I, I do remember like one of the figures that we quoted, and that was a, roughly around 10% of the population at the time, based on some surveys and polls, were would be willing to entertain the idea of having sex with a robot or view that as potentially socially acceptable. Subsequent to that, and I, I'm going to have to apologize and say that I, I won't be able to cite the exact names of the authors on all these studies, but um, maybe we could follow up later and I could give you links yep. to them and yep. you could include them in, in show notes or something. But I do remember after the book was published, there was a study done suggesting that uh, the figure had changed kind of in one survey in the UK, it was around 22% of people were willing to entertain okay. the idea. And then actually just last year, and maybe this is a function of, of the pandemic as well, who knows, uh, there was a, a company that did a survey and the methodology of this is obscure. So, you know, treat it with a certain a grain of salt, um, which suggested that around 40% of people in that survey would have been willing to have sex with a robot. So, if you take that seriously, there's there's it still seemed to be a bit of a change in the social acceptability of it over mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so if that continues, then there could be greater social acceptance okay. of it. I would also say, uh, you know, um, a colleague of mine, Julie Carpenter, who actually wrote a chapter in in, in that edited collection that I have on on robot sex, you know, she has this theory of kind of like what makes the technology socially acceptable over time, um, and there's a danger in assuming that the acceptance of technology is something that's static, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the early people who had um, mobile phones were probably treated to some extent to social pariahs and annoyances or uh, as a very niche market, but then it became a, a mass market product. Uh, now, I don't, I don't think, I'm, I'm not convinced that sex dolls or sex robots will, will have kind of similar um, social acceptability. But, you know, as there are more people who have them, and more kind of media representations of them, uh, more people who are not kind of stigmatized or shamed for having mm-hmm. them. This could just sort of grows the social acceptability of them. you get kind of a feedback process where uh, all these kind of representations and incidents reinforce one another and people kind of reduce their social opposition to this. And, and we've seen this over and over again with different kinds of sexual practice. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the obvious example then would be something like gay sex or, or homosexuality, something that was socially unacceptable um you know 100 years ago and is now essentially well in many countries it's now treated as uh, essentially normal and uh, socially acceptable right right okay well i think it'll be really interesting to kind of track that over time and see uh what the acceptance level of these uh technologies um uh, takes place in maybe the next five, 10 years, um, specifically based on all the kind of, um, you know, social impacts that we've been talking about already. Uh, I do see that the time is winding down a little bit here. I, I really want to maybe end the discussion here on uh, really what the, what the main theme of the podcast is, which is, which is the impact of on work from the technologies that are explored. So um, obviously when it comes to sex robots the first thing that comes to your mind come to anybody's mind when we talk about the adoption of this technology is its impact on sex work right um what are your thoughts uh, will sex work become obsolete will there still be a space for human sex workers uh, in the in the future when these technologies are scale out and become you know uh, more human like uh, what, what's your perspective on that yeah, and as I said at the start of the interview, this, this wasn't actually my entry point into this uh, debate as well. Um, and even though I published these views like back in 2013, I don't think my views have changed substantially. And I have actually you know, published a whole book about technological unemployment and its impact on uh, society since then. Uh, and that has been, uh, I guess, more of my kind of primary focus as well. Um, 
so I, I there's a simplistic thesis, which is that sex robots will replace sex workers. And there are a variety of reasons to why you might think that's true. Number one, that sex work is socially unacceptable and legally um, unacceptable in, in many countries, although that has changed and over time. Um, so, you know, being a sex worker is something that is precarious and difficult mm-hmm. and um, stigmatized in modern society. So it's not a hugely desirable form of employment. Uh, people might, you know, feel a bit kind of shady or un, um, unsavory about uh, seeking out human sex workers, might be discouraged from doing so. And so you might say that the robot will be less, uh, uh, will have less hurdles to its kind of uh, use in the sex work indi- mm-hmm. industry. And there are, there are a number of people who've kind of made that that basic case. Um, and, you know, those are the kind of arguments that, well, it might be safer than um, human sex workers. And obviously, human sex work has an association with human, tra- human trafficking and kind of pretty, pretty terrible treatment of yeah. human beings. So you can eliminate those ethical concerns about the practice with the use of the uh, technology. Uh, so those are reasons to think it it might replace sex work over time. I suppose my view on this has been somewhat contrarian in that I, I'm less convinced that that's true. Mm. Um, and a part of the reason why I'm less convinced that sh- that's true is because I think we've got to consider the impact on sex work um, in light of the impact of automation on other kinds of employment. Okay. So automation is impacting on other kinds of employment, probably at a much faster rate than it's impacting on sex work. Um, it's displacing, you know, it, it has displaced a lot of agricultural work, manufacturing work, now increasingly replacing a lot of services work and sort of knowledge work. Uh, and that looks set to continue. And even if it's not actually replacing that kind of work, one thing that it's doing to those industries is that it's making work uh, more precarious, less well rewarded. Uh, and people have to seek out, you know, multiple jobs to be uh, kind of economically viable over time. And so what does that do? I think that creates a pressure for people to move into jobs where there is some kind of human advantage. Uh, so there is an advantage to being a human providing right. the service. And it seems to me that sex work is plausibly one of the areas where there is an advantage to being a human uh, relative to a robot. It's mm-hmm. certainly true given the current state of technology. Um, and um, it may even be true when we have kind of uh, more realistic uh, sex robots. Although, you know, you, you question that if, if if the if the robot is indistinguishable from a human, then the human advantage might fade away. But for the time being, it seems plausible to think that the human advantage is there. So the the impact of these other forms of automation on employment seems to me it might be one something that pushes people into sex work, even if it is socially unacceptable and stigmatized and and uh, not kind of properly legally regulated uh, because again, economic necessity trumps all these other concerns for people. And, and in fact, you know, there, there's some evidence to suggest that this is true. Uh, there is a kind of, to some degree, an increasing acceptance of, social, of sex work, particularly internet-based sex work. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, platforms like OnlyFans have shown how it might be viable for people to kind of have employment in, in this way and uh, in a reasonably safe uh, form. So I think we, we could potentially think of sex work as an area that might be kind of particularly hard for there to be this kind of replacement of human service providers. And ironically, it may be the case that automation in other industries increases the number of people who are willing to supply their labor into the sex work market. Mm. And so you actually get an increase in human sex workers as opposed to a decrease as a result of technological uh, displacement. 
That's a really interesting, uh, controversial, and I guess uh, different discussion point uh, point of view that I've uh, haven't come across uh, as I've had these discussions multiple times. I was always uh, in the camp that yeah, you know, sex bots would be the the technology that would maybe maybe not fully end, but it would certainly reduce the amount of sex work uh, across the world, specifically because it is one of these. Uh, professions that is so looked down upon by society, even though we are seeing, you know, certain places uh, legalizing it, or there's like a, a, some growing acceptance of the, of the trade. Um, that's a really interesting idea, John. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, I, I do see that our time is up here. Uh, how can people get a hold of you? Where can people um, reach out to you? Uh, I also have your, your, the name of your book and link uh, in the show notes, but um, how can people get a hold of you best? Yeah, so I mean, I have a, a blog or website that I've been running for quite some time. Called it's called. I need to take a pause here for a minute. Uh, Philosophical Disquisitions. So it's quite a, a long title, um, which you know has thousands of essays that I've written over the years. Mm-hmm. Well, not thousands. I think maybe twelve hundred essays that I've written over the years, uh, and that that's sort of the main hub for everything that I do. I have a podcast with the same name where I talk mainly about technology and law and ethics. And then if people are interested, they can find me on Twitter, I guess, at John Danaher. So I was the the first John Danaher to uh, be on Twitter, but not awesome. the most famous one. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and sharing your ideas and insights into this uh, really, I think, fascinating technology and uh, specifically with its repercussions for society in both the good and the bad. So uh, yeah, I wanted to thank you for coming on and um, and sharing those ideas. Yeah, no problem, Mark. It was nice to have a conversation about this. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast and the conversations here, the best way to do this is to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave a review as it helps the algorithm to reach out to new listeners and brings the show to them. Also, feel free to check out the website, automatedpodcast.org, where you can find the show notes for each episode, written articles on the themes of the podcast, and a library of resources on the topic of emerging tech and automation. Also, if you want to reach out and leave any feedback or you have any questions about the podcast or any of the conversations, there are general contact links such as email, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. for you there on the website. And finally, for those of you that want more than just an audio conversation, the video recordings are now going to be up on YouTube for the newer conversations. So feel free to check out the videos by searching for Automated Podcast on YouTube, where, of course, you can like and subscribe if you prefer to support the podcast that way. The Automated Podcast.